Welcome to Distant Voices, a podcast presented by Willamette Week. Join us every Wednesday to hear members of the Willamette Week newsroom talk to Oregonians about how they are overcoming the pandemic. Come back on Saturdays to listen to Dive, a podcast hosted by me, Hank Sanders, that takes a look at the Willamette Week cover story and includes interviews with the biggest names in the state. You can enjoy more episodes of these podcasts on this channel and learn more about our work at wweek.com. Enjoy this episode of Distant Voices. Hello, this is Matt Singer. I am the arts and culture editor at Willamette Week. And uh, today I am speaking with Matt King. He is a, a longtime kind of behind the scenes fixture of the, uh, the Portland music scene. He was a talent buyer at uh, venues like Mississippi Studios and Revolution Hall. Um, he has since started his own um, kind of live music promotion company called Folk Magic and is uh, in the process of booking tours at places like the Wonder Ballroom, uh, the Crystal Ballroom, um, for the fall now that the uh, concert industry is sort of uh, coming back to life a little bit. Um, and Matt, I wanted to ask, you know, so after like a year of a pause in the live music world, and now that you're starting to book stuff again, what has changed, if anything, in terms of, you know, from your perspective as a guy who's you know, trying to book these tours, is anything different? I mean, I, I would say most everything is different. It's been a been a madcap game of uh, musical chairs behind the scenes. I mean, one of the largest music agencies was Paradigm Music. That's no more. It got bought by Wasserman, which is like a sports marketing company. So um, yeah, there have been new agencies jumping up, old agencies just shuttering, you know, venues closing, new programs. It's, it's, it's been a wild 12 months for sure. How about in terms of like, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in like the economics, uh, you know, in terms of booking bands and that kind of thing. Like our bands, have their rates like fluctuated? Are they asking for more right now? Are they asking for less? Um, right now, so you you had said fall. Um, I'm still not super optimistic about the fall. Um, I'm more optimistic about winter. Mm. You know, getting after the uh, you know after the Thanksgiving holiday and making sure there aren't any huge spikes. Um, but you know, when everything was chaotic, people were more like, "I trust you." You know, we've got a good relationship. I have no reason not to believe that you'll continue that. But there are so much uncertainties. You know, this is going to be kind of a handshake. And that lasted up to a point, but now, you know, I'm looking as far out as spring 2023 and, you know, everyone with just what a difference an administration makes because Biden has done a great job and I'm not trying to be partisan here, but um, I've noticed a huge difference. I mean, just everyone in the industry is so much more positive now that, you know, Biden's doing things and he's making vast improvements. Like they're, you can see them, they're, they're tangible. Um, the vaccinations are great. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. Yeah, you, you mentioned that you know, you're looking further out than fall, uh, you know, more like the very end of 2021, beginning of 2022. But uh, I have seen, you know, like concerts and, and festivals are starting to kind of come back around like September. Right. Is what I'm seeing. And I was going to ask, you know, if there's a little bit of finger crossing and wishful thinking there on the on the parts of uh, you know both the bands and other people within the concert industry, you're, you're not totally confident that uh, things will be back to normal by then. I mean, for me, I wasn't, and at this point, that window is kind of closed for fall. Um, I, I, I do have international artists that are playing these festivals, like Tree Fort in Boise. You know, Idaho has is less restrictive than Oregon, so they're they're gung ho. They want to do it. They're going to go for it. And Idaho's a state, unlike Oregon, that is going to allow that a little more. I think. 
Um, but yeah, I am getting hit up to try and find shows in September, um, you know, for acts playing those festivals. And I just, I don't want to mess with it. I think it's too early and the agents are asking for significant money and I'm just not sure Portland's going to be ready yet. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, uh, you know, you could bring concerts back, uh, but there's like always going to be that, I feel like that there's a psychological hurdle for the fans. You know, it's among the most intimate kind of things that you can do in public with a bunch of strangers. And which right. is why I think a lot of people assume that the concert industry was going to be like the last thing that comes back from this. Um, do you anticipate that being a factor as well of people just, even after all the vaccinations, just being a little bit wary of being shoulder to shoulder in a room with people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some people aren't going to care and a lot of people are going to care. So you know, it's still just, it's a moving target as when things are going to open and when people are going to be feeling good about being in big crowds again. Um, do, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know what the future holds, for instance, with like vaccine passports. I don't know if anyone's going to actually try and enforce that. Um, you know, as someone who is getting vaccinated, I do believe in science and I want as many people to get vaccinated so we can get back to normal as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. How does this all affect the, um, the festival circuit, which is almost like, a, you know, it's it's almost separate from the just general touring circuit as well. I've seen, you know, obviously so many festivals have, you know, are uh, reannounced or, you know, kind of unthawing their lineups that were frozen in uh, 2020. And it seemed like before everything kind of shut down, you know, we were obviously at sort of a, you know, the bubble has was bursting, it felt like, on the oh, festival world. Yeah. Um, Festivals are struggling in general. Right. Does this reinvigorate festivals? The fact that we didn't have any live music for a year, does, does this come back? Does it hasten that death kind of uh, spiral that a lot of them are in? What do, you, what do you see? Oh, I mean, you know, just kind of the industry perspective is that it's going to be a gold rush when people feel safe. Um, you know, largely the expectations in the industry are that things are going to return and they're going to boom. Like the concert business in general was booming. It had never been it had never done as well as it had in 2019. So, you know, two years off, people love live music. It's, it's an experience you can't recreate. There's just something, you know, really magical, like not to be corny about it, but I mean, as someone who loves live music, you just cannot replace that. I, I, I'm not a big fan of the live streams that people have been doing. I wanna be in the venue, you know, surrounded by people, like having a good time and just vibing off of each other on something they love. Um. You know, when this pandemic started, I think there was obviously a lot of fear that, particularly in Portland, that there was going to be this kind of uh, venue apocalypse, um, that we would lose, like you know, all you know, a, a, a lot of venues in the same way that we lost bars and restaurants. But I can't recall. I don't. I think at this point, at least so far, we're obviously not completely out of the woods yet. But uh, I don't think any major venues in town have shuttered permanently. Do you have any insight on why on why that might be or why that is? Uh, well, I don't want to, you know, um, we might have to edit this part. I want to choose my words carefully. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a lot of venues, they were anticipating kind of a financial apocalypse. And for sure, you know, it's been 18 months of no income for most of the people in this industry. And like, that's not easy for anyone. But a lot of these venue owners do have deep pockets. Um, and, you know, they were making plays and they were making moves based on like business strategy. 
So if they could get some sort of buffer from the government, they were going to do that. And that was Neva's call, you know, the National Independent Venue Association. Hmm. They were, you know, I've been watching and I really haven't seen that many venues across the country fold. Like the only one that really like resonates with me, and I apologize if I leave anything out, but Boot and Saddle in Philadelphia was always a great room. And, you know, they closed at the beginning of the pandemic. They, they just knew they weren't going to make it through. Mm-hmm. But that's the only one that, you know, for me and my personal taste and, you know, the places that book the kind of shows that I want to book, like that's the only big one nationally that, you know, really resonates and, you know, sticks with me as a closure. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting that, you know, they were sort of able to, as an industry, maybe keep their heads above water a little bit more than like, you know, restaurants and bars where it was just like, you know, like a clear cutting of, you know, a lot of the, you know, particularly right. in Portland, a lot of the big names. Are just right. on. Um, I want to ask, you know, finally, you've been, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you, you've obviously booked big national acts throughout your career. Um, but you're also, you know, very involved with the local music community here in town. What what do you feel like is um, as a concert, you know, booker? What is your responsibility to like the local music community in Portland? Um, and you know, kind of trying to to reinvigorate it after this, you know, a long year of just complete silence. Do you feel like any like sort of like, added responsibility to sort of help out the people on the local level? I do, absolutely. I joined the board of directors for Wow Hall down in Eugene. Um, That's where I went to school and I've just got a big soft spot in my heart for that venue. Um, So I'm trying to help them out there. They're having trouble getting restarted more so than most people. Um, But one idea I had was kind of a restart Oregon concert series where I'd have, you know, like six bands driving between Bend and Portland and Eugene just on a given weekend, you know, so that they could do like a mini tour uh, and, Nobody has a lot of money to throw out guarantees and bands obviously want some sort of, they, no one wants to drive two hours and play to three people. Like that's just depressing. So, you know, I think like a grant project, a grant program is really what would be necessary for Oregon, for local Oregon musicians to really get back on the road in an impactful way for both audiences and the bands themselves. Shannon and I'm Willamette Week's music and visual arts editor um, here today with Noah Greenwald from the Center of Biological Diversity, um, which is one of seven conservation groups currently uh, suing the Oregon um, Forestry, the Oregon Department of Forestry um, for post-fire logging practices in the Santiam Forest. Um, Noah, how's it going today? Good, good. Thanks, Shannon. Um, so to start off, what's going on in the Santiam that this uh, lawsuit is hoping to at least halt? Sure. So as you know, Oregonians well know, there was a series of fires last September, including the Beachy Creek fire. And uh, those, those fires affected um, what is called the Santiam State Forest, uh, which is in the Cascades. And um, according to the Oregon Department of Forestry, roughly 16,000 acres burned. One sort of finer point about that, though, is that you know fires are a mosaic. So, you know, some areas will burn quite hot, and all the trees will be killed. Some areas will burn 
just a bit and most of the trees will survive. And, you know, that's very much true for the San Yam State Forest. It was a mosaic. And so the Oregon Department of Forestry is proposing, actually already is, logging some of those areas um, in order to recover the wood. Um, and, um, you know, we're not, there. There of those 16,000 acres, they're proposing to log roughly 3,000 acres. We're not objecting to logging in all of those acres. Under their forest management plan, they designated areas as being targeted for, for developing complex forest characteristics, which is another way of saying old forest characteristics, bigger trees, multi-storied canopy, um, a mix of live and dead trees. Those are all the things that make up complex forests. They also are in the process of developing a habitat conservation plan to protect endangered species like the Northern Spotted Owl. And they've proposed some areas of the San Yam State Forest as habitat conservation areas. And um, in both those cases, you know, we're objecting to logging in areas that they targeted for developing complex forests and areas that they've proposed as habitat conservation areas, which amounts to roughly a third of the 3,000 acres that they're proposing. And, um, you know, from our perspective, the science is clear that uh, going in and clear cutting these areas will not help them develop habitat for salmon. It will not help them develop habitat for spotted owls. In fact, it'll, it'll retard the um, ability of those forests to recover and meet habitat goals and meet the goal of being complex forests. And so we just feel like what, what Oregon Department of Forestry is proposing is fundamentally inconsistent with their own management plans. And, and um, we've gone to state court to challenge them. Um, so a, a lot of these areas are currently closed to the public. So a lot of us just don't even know what it, what it looks like down there. Um, have you personally been able to go and sort of survey the area firsthand? No, I haven't been able to go, but I do know that my colleagues at Cascadia Wildlands, that they've been able to fly over some of the areas with the drone. And um, they definitely saw a lot of green trees, a lot of live trees in areas that are being proposed for clear cutting, um, which is, you know, again, unfortunate. But it's important to recognize that that dead trees, as well as live trees, have a lot of uh, benefit for wildlife um, and for fish in particular. You know, one of the things that salmon have suffered from in Oregon is the loss of, of large woody debris in streams. And so a lot of those dead trees would eventually end up in streams and would help provide habitat for salmon, but not if they're clear cut. So is the ultimate hope of just more public um, oversight and accountability for ODF, or do we also need to be fundamentally rethinking how um, we view the role of forests and, and fire and how logging plays, plays into all that? I would say both. I mean, I, I think accountability is important and, and that's been missing from, from the Oregon Department of Forestry. And I think we've seen that in the, you know, the series produced by OPB and the Oregonian called Failing Forestry. 
which I'd encourage people to read. Um, but I think also it is time to rethink, you know, particularly with state forests, you know, whether they whether they play a, a, a you know, whether there's a bigger role for them in addressing climate change. Um, you know, I think there's been increasing science coming out of Oregon State University that shows that the timber industry is one of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. And um, I think it's underappreciated that land clearance, including logging, is, is a major factor in, in global warming in addition to fossil fuel burning. I think people recognize that, you know, we have to leave the Amazon in place in order to protect um, our climate. But I, I think there's also a growing awareness that Oregon, particularly Western Oregon, which is quite wet, is an excellent place to store more carbon and that logging those forests will, will release that carbon um, and will release carbon that would be stored in soils in particular. So it, it, it is time to rethink how we manage our forests. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, economically, there's even whole other issues there of, you know, relying on timber receipts for government services in many cases has proven quite unstable and hasn't been a good way to manage communities. All right. Uh, well, those are all of my questions, unless you have anything that you want to add or ask or clarify. You know, I just, I guess the one thing I would add is, you know, scientists from around the world um, are raising the alarm bells that we're in an extinction crisis and that that has serious consequences for future generations. And habitat destruction has long been the biggest cause of extinction, including logging. You know, so that's that's another part of this puzzle is that we need to protect more of nature if we're going to both address climate and extinction. And, um, you know, I, I think these are things that Oregonians care about. And I think Oregon Department of Forestry is out of step with the science and out of step with public values. And, you know, this, this lawsuit we brought is just one small part of that. Hey folks, we end our show today with an interview with news editor Aaron Mash talking to an anchor on K2 News, a local Portland TV station. Aaron is discussing Willamette Week's recent cover story about police shooting people who are thought to be carrying weapons when they're actually not carrying real guns or anything dangerous. I know we covered this in last week's Dive podcast, but if you didn't catch that, I think that this three-minute interview gives a really great rundown of the story. So here it is, and again, thanks for listening to Distant Voices, and we'll see you on Saturday. Topic of this week's Willamette Week. Here to talk about it, Willamette Week news editor Aaron Mesh. How are you, Aaron? I'm doing well. How are you? Not bad. You found in the past decade one in four people that Portland police officers shot were thought to have a weapon, but that didn't actually turn out to be the case. How does this happen? That's right. Since 2010, in 11 of the 51 shootings where an officer pulled the trigger, the person was believed to have a gun and it turned out they had a replica weapon. In another four of those shootings, the person was believed to have a weapon and had no weapon at all. So the question is, how is it that a bureau that comes out heavily armed, uh, in fact, 20% of officers carry AR-15s, which is a military-grade rifle, how is it that that bureau is confronting people who they think could shoot them, 
but in fact have no ability to harm them. So that steps back to the question of how is 911 logging these calls and who is it sending to these calls? Now you talk to the Bureau of Emergency Communications. They say there's no protocol for asking 911 callers about weapons, right? That's right. When we talked to BOIC, the Bureau of Emergency Communications, about this issue, it became clear this isn't a question of good faith or of, uh, or of good effort by the people who are doing this work. They work hard and they care. The problem is more systemic. There aren't protocols to ask follow-up questions about weapons when someone says there's a weapon involved in a case. In other words, if someone calls 911 and says, I've seen a gun, the Bureau asks a lot of questions. They say, who has the gun? They say, uh, where are you? They say uh, all sorts of, they ask all sorts of follow-up questions, but what they don't ask is for a further description of the weapon. And that kind of detail can be really important. For example, Robert Delgado, who was killed by police officers last month, was carrying a gun that had an orange tip on the end. An orange tip is in fact a giveaway placed by the manufacturers to show that this gun can't fire. If you look right there at that image, there on the end is that orange cap. That orange cap is a signal this gun can't fire and that's important because the police officer probably can't see that orange cap from the 90 feet away at which he shot Robert Delgado. What happened when you took these findings to city leaders Aaron? Well, they expressed concern, but they weren't sure about a solution immediately. Uh, particularly Mingus Maps. Commissioner Maps is the, the new commissioner who oversees the Bureau of Emergency Communications. And we found him to be responsive on this issue. He's only overseeing this bureau for two months. And he expressed deep concern that Portlanders are calling 911 and either incorrectly or falsely reporting weapons. In some cases, because of an uh, honest misunderstanding about what it is that they're seeing and in other cases perhaps in fact because they feel that police officers aren't responding quickly enough as you know there's a, a real backlog of calls to the police bureau that many citizens are frustrated they aren't getting a response to and some people have talked about adding a weapon into their reports as a way to get police officers to respond more quickly and that can have devastating results Aaron Mesh for Lamont Week always great to see you thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Distant Voices. Thank you to everyone who was a part of this episode, including the guests and Willamette Week Newsroom. Also, special thank you to AmpMusic.co and Heather Witte for the music that you heard on this podcast. For more great content, be sure to follow Dive by Willamette Week on all podcast platforms. Join us Saturdays for our Dive podcast show and follow along with Willamette Week's content at WWeek.com and on all social platforms. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.